last in our series of looking through the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. We're there already, eight Sundays later. Just so you know, next week we've got Relational Mission Sunday. We'll be celebrating the bigger family we're part of. But the week after, we're going to start on seven weeks in 1 Thessalonians. Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. So in the meantime, if you want to be having a read of that, read that book, get to know it a little bit more, and you'll be more familiar with it, ready for when I preach on the first one in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, John chapter 1, the fourth book of the New Testament, in the very first chapter. Let me read it first. We're going to read the whole lot, because we spent including today, eight Sundays going through these 18 verses. Today we're going to look at the very final verse. So let's remind ourselves of where we've been before we land at the big finale. How's that? So, uh, first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let me just pray. Lord, we love your word. We are so grateful that you've provided it for us. You reveal yourself in immense ways through this. And so often we feel we're barely starting. (laughs) So much treasure in here. But we thank you that as we do dig in, you reveal something more of yourself. Lord, even today, many of us may have been Christians for years. Some of us maybe for a few days or weeks. But Lord, may each one of us have understood a little more of you. That we might know you a little more, that we might be challenged by you, provoked in our thinking, our understanding. Lord, come by Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to us this morning, we pray. Amen. (coughs) Who here believes in Father Christmas? Stop it. Good, I can talk about him without worrying about spoilers. He doesn't exist. Sorry, but he doesn't. Jenny and I have had this whole conversation through our Amy's upbringing about do we do Father Christmas with her or not? Because there's a whole thing about Father Christmas is real and we do the icing sugar footprints around the fireplace and some of the mince pie and the whiskey you put by the fireplace has gone missing. Always a a quality whiskey first. You've got to be careful because Daddy helps him. 
and uh, I bet the carrot's been munched by Rudolph and this kind of stuff. And, and uh, she'd never allow him in her bedroom anyway. I think she was concerned if he'd had a DBS check or not. So we always had to, the presents were downstairs, not in her bedroom overnight. But suddenly these presents would appear from Father Christmas. And we thought, we're starting to feel a bit, this whole idea, just feeling not quite right about this. Because we could get to the point where she understands it was all mum and dad. And therefore, if you made up this thing about Father Christmas, who I never see, and he's not real, you talk to me about Jesus. You talk to me about God. And there's this whole kind of, just a gentle balance of how do we play that. We did the Father Christmas thing with her, but we did it lightly. It was just one present from him rather than all the presents. And then we were more than ready to pounce. As soon as she was like, I'm not so sure about this, we'd be like, yeah, you're right. We didn't hold it on and didn't enforce the lie. Some people don't do it at all. Some people love it. That's fine. It's, it's down to you and your conscience and how you parent. But we just wanted to be very, very careful that we don't set her up for a fall when it comes to God. Same with the tooth fairy and parents with Easter bunnies and this kind of stuff. We just have to be very, very careful. For many of us, particularly children, seeing is believing as they get older. Initially, they take your word for it and then they're like, oh, I haven't seen him. Are you sure about this? Our... Uh, 80%, I believe it is, of our um, information about the world around us that we receive is visual. Actually, about 30% of our cerebral cortexes are devoted to receiving visual information and processing visual information. We depend a lot on what we see. And that affects our understanding of the things we believe, which is particularly in our current modern age, in the past 200 years of the Enlightenment, rationality, if you can't see X plus Y equals Z, therefore why should I believe you? There's a real reasoning behind that. And that's how our brains are wired now. And we have to be very careful that the Bible says a lot about seeing God. Even just, uh, was it the psalm you were reading about seeking his face, wasn't it? Um, the Bible says a lot about that, but what does it mean by that? What does it mean by seeing God, and if we can, how can we? That's what I want to talk about today. There's one thing I've carried with me for years and I've learned to put aside has been the whole... It's quite a bit of a sentimental thing in some ways. It would have been lovely, but just to think, if only I'd been there 2,000 years ago, wandering around Nazareth and Galilee and you know, Bethany and Bethlehem and Jerusalem, all in those moments to see him and to end up walking alongside him and laughing with him, being one of his disciples, having a barbecue on the beach with him, crying with him, getting told off by him probably. I think there's, just, there's this whole thing, of just wouldn't it have been brilliant? But actually, if we're devoting everything to visual information, to be able to see him and, and, and that kind of thing. It's just, we're missing the point massively of who he is and what it means to see him because there were thousands if not millions of people in the area who had opportunity to see him. Certainly thousands saw him. Not all of them believed. They saw him physically with their eyes, saw the things he did, heard the things he said. And yet, even in this chapter, just said, not all of his people knew him or accepted him. In fact, they rejected him. The physical sight just scratches the surface. So before we dig deeper, we must understand seeing God is about his nearness, to be able to see him. Let's understand a little bit of his farness first. We need to not forget right at the beginning, he's a holy God. He's set apart. That's what holy means. So you just turn to 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. There's a couple of verses I want us to read just to... Set the scene of who this God is, first of all. One Timothy six, verse fifteen, and the second part. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. Okay. We can't see him. Unapproachable light. And if you turn to Exodus 33, let's get it from both, both Testaments of the Bible. Exodus 33. And verse 20, this is the Lord talking to Moses. And he says, this is Moses wanted to see him. And he says, well, you can see a bit of me, but you're not going to see all of me. And this is what he says. But he said, you, Moses, cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. We need to understand before we start any further, how holy is our God, how unapproachable he is, because of his mere, utter, glorious, beautiful perfection it's not just really really nice it's really really scary this is the awesome amazing god that we're talking about just to set the scene and yet the bible talks about different ways of seeing god keep your fingers in exodus 33 we'll come back to that in a minute but um just want to go through some examples in the bible of what the bible says about different ways of seeing god and then we'll return to John chapter 1 later on and put that verse in context. Okay? So that one in Exodus 33. God's saying, you can't see my face and live. No one can. This is Moses. So what does he say he can see? He's back. Carry on, verse 21. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you should stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See, the Bible does talk about physical sight of God, but it talks about it in two ways. Here's an example where you can see God physically, but only in part. To see in full, you just it's too much for your human, not just your human mind, but actually your human state, your sinful state. You cannot live. That's seeing God in part. And there's another example in, that I love in Ezekiel 1. The prophet, Ezekiel, gets to see this amazing vision. Where are we? Ezekiel chapter 1. This is brilliant. He, see, he sees all these strange creatures. We won't read the whole chapter. He sees these strange creatures. He sees this weird eye wheel. This is mad kind of three-dimensional wheel thing that spins around and it's covered in eyes. It's really, 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 it's just, it's pretty just because he can't quite put, express what he's seen. <laughs> he just doesn't know how to put it down in actual words. But then right at the end, verse uh, 29, this is how the only way Ezekiel can really define what it means to see God. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Not such was the Lord, or even such was the appearance of the Lord, or even such was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord. He goes three steps removed is the only way he's been able to see God. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's like, I couldn't get any closer. This is, this is the closest I'm ever going to get as a human being. You can see God in part. You get an essence of him or you just see his back. It is possible to see God physically as these people did, but only in part. Is it possible to see God in full? Well, strangely enough, some people in the Bible did. Hang on, what's going on here? Look out for a pattern here. 
Hagar in Genesis 16. She meets a man. Genesis 16. You don't have to keep flicking with me, but you can if you want to. Genesis 16. And it's called describe the angel of the Lord. This is a common phrase that keeps popping up. The angel of the Lord comes to her, find, finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he really, just the way he talks to her, has such compassion for her current dire circumstances. And then later on, she says in verse 13, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Somehow, she's seen God in full. Another one, Exodus 24. There's Moses and the elders. This is brilliant. Exodus 24. In verse, uh, verses 9 to 10. Then Moses and Aaron, his brother, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They had dinner with him. But I thought you're not allowed to see him or otherwise you'll die. What's going on here? Jacob, in Genesis 32, wrestles with God. And uh, who else we got? We've got Abram in Genesis 18. He negotiates, he haggles with God. It's very interesting that as you start to get these moments when people have seen God in full, you start putting them all together. The phraseology, the language used, the angel of the Lord, and these kind of languages used, actually turns out these are foreshadowing cameo moments of Jesus turning up. They're called Christophanies. Theophanies, but they're Christophanies. There's a repeated number, there's more that I haven't even listed. But whenever we get to see God in full, we discover actually here it's Jesus kind of stepping onto the stage briefly and then stepping back again because his time isn't yet before he turns up properly in flesh. Angel of the Lord quite often means actually it's Jesus. And so we talk about, uh, we hear about three angels. Three angels come to see Abram in that bit I've just mentioned in Genesis when he negotiates with God. There's three men and then they're later described as the Lord and two angels. It's Jesus walking with him. He walks with him to go and have a look. And they haggle about, should I save this city or not? But also in Daniel, you know about the Sunday school story about the uh, fiery furnace? Three three believers for the Lord are thrown into the fiery fiery furnace because they will not deny their God. And then they look and there's a fourth one in there. And he's described as the son of the gods. It's Jesus. Jesus was in that fiery furnace with them. He keeps popping up little cameos, little kind of hints in the Old Testament before we arise fully in human flesh in, uh, in the New Testament. So, from what we understand so far, the pattern is that you can see God but only in part. That's the Father. You can see God in full. It will be Jesus. Remember that. There's another way that the Bible talks about seeing God and that is by not just physical sight but by spiritual sight. So, It's a a certain language that's used. For example, we use it in English. If Amy's having trouble with homework and she's struggling with some craft, she'll go to Jenny because I haven't got a clue. But if she's struggling with maths, Jenny will point her to me very quickly. Uh, (laughs) But I'll point out how the formula works or the particular system of long division works. And after a while, I'll just say to her, do you see? Do you see now? No, I still don't get it, Daddy. How about this? Now do you see? It's a language you use about seeing that isn't actually with our physical eyes. It's a different means of seeing. So, for example, we'll say, um, seeing, as I, seeing as I'm in the area, I'll pop in. 
seeing as I'm hungry, I'll eat now. It's not talking about using your eyes at all, is it? It's about an understanding. It's about a comprehension. And so Ephesians 1.18, I'm making you flick about a lot today, aren't I? I just want the Bible to prove itself and don't listen to me. How's that? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Well, verse 17. This is Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eyes of your, your hearts don't have eyes, do they? But spiritually, they do. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ? Saying, I just hope that the eyes, spiritual eyes of your hearts, will be opened up to quite what Christ has done for you. It keeps pointing to Jesus. I pray that your hearts will get to see Jesus and what he's done for you. Again, this is about seeing Jesus. And remember last week, understanding the truth, what Derek... Um, what uh, Darren Blaney said to us, that truth is a person. The truth is Jesus. It's not just about right and wrong facts, truth and incorrect, true and false. The truth is a person. So even spiritual sight is about having the eyes of our heart enlightened to the truth of Christ. It's about Jesus again. There is another way of seeing, seeing God in the Bible, it's called seeing in the Spirit. When someone was in the Spirit and they have a great vision. It refers to actually what Ezekiel was talking about earlier. And so, for example, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, it's one of my favourite sections of the Bible where Isaiah has this amazing vision while he's in the Spirit of the Lord upon the throne. And his train fills the temple and he just crumbles before him. I shouldn't even be here. Woe is me. It's an amazing picture. Isaiah chapter 6. And yet in John chapter 12, we also find, we discover that that wasn't the Father, that was Jesus. There's a pattern emerging here, isn't there? Revelation chapter 1. John, Jesus' best friend, who wrote this uh, gospel that we've been looking at the first chapter of. John, he gets to have, while he's in the Spirit, on the Sabbath, he gets to have a vision of... Jesus. Hello, there's a pattern emerging here, isn't there? It's amazing. Again, it's one of my favourite chapters. I keep referring to these chapters because I don't want to lose how amazing and scary and awesome Jesus is rather than Jesus meek and mild. He's got eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze and a voice like the oceans and his sword comes out of his mouth. I want to get that in my head. This is Jesus. John sees him in full while he's in the Spirit. There's a pattern emerging. Isis warriors, some of them are turning to Christ. Do you know how? They're having dreams and visions of Jesus. <laughs> Something going on here, isn't there? <laughs> when Paul talks about someone, actually himself, being caught up to the third heaven, I wonder what he saw. But he'd have had a full revelation. But he said, I can't even talk about it. Some people have visions of Jesus. Some people have, while well, they're in the spirit. I've, I'm not going to tell you about it. I've had something that's personal to me. But it's just like... That's just, I don't even know how to put it in words. I have, not quite like Paul. But I've had something. It is possible to see something in the Spirit. But more often that's rare and it's, and it's just for that person. But whenever we get to see God in full, when, when, we, when we get to see God in part, it's the Father. When we get to see God in full, who is it? Jesus. So therefore, John chapter 1, verse 18. Let's come back to that now. 
No one has ever seen God. We get that bit now, don't we? The only God, or other versions say, the only one who is God, the only Son, it's all buried in that original text, the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So if we can't physically see Jesus 2,000 years ago, if we can't physically see the back of God, or get in a an impression of his appearance, of his likeness, of his glory. Or perhaps if you haven't had an experience in the Spirit, and that's fine. There is no upper circle of Christianity. It's just for certain people whom he chooses. It doesn't make you a better or a worse Christian. If you've not experienced that, but then we can see him by spiritual sight, how do we do that? How does that happen? What does that mean? See, to look at Jesus, he's saying here, is to look at the Father. It's not about physical attributes. It's not about limbs and the colour of his hair and what kind of beard he had. It's missing the point. In fact, Isaiah 53 makes it quite clear he wasn't beautiful at all. It's not about physical attributes. It's about something deeper. It's about character. And the things he did were born out of who he was. And therefore, why we get four different eyewitness accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that's how we get to see Jesus. And therefore, that's how we get to see the Father. So let's take a look at this Jesus, shall we? Different character attributes. This list is inexhaustible, but I've just got a few, just for example. He was loving, wasn't he? Jesus, in the Gospel accounts, was loving immensely. A real tenderness and acceptance we're talking about here. He'd accept the person, not their behaviour. He wouldn't endorse the behaviour, but accept the person for who they are. You see how he does it with children. He does it with outcasts. He does it with the unclean. The way he ministers to the lepers and the people that the Jewish people were, can't go anywhere near them. The way he dealt with them was just utterly beautiful. The way he related to the rich and the poor. The way he related to the bereaving and the affluent. It's a real love that's just demonstrated by how he, how he responded to the people around him. He's a loving God. Another example, he's compassionate. Slightly different to loving. To have compassion means to have an affection for those that are in suffering and an actual desire to want to help alleviate that suffering. It's more than just being loving. It's a, it's a compassion. The word passion contains the word pain. That's actually part of its root. It's just like, ah, I want to help you. I hurt with you. That's compassion. He was extremely compassionate. He went around healing people, sometimes just listening. That's important. That brings a balm to people as well. Raising from the dead. He just saw suffering around him and he wanted to help. It's just there was a real, he hurt with them. It's a real compassion. He's a compassionate God. Confrontational. It's not all the nice stuff. He's confrontational, isn't he? Even when he's dealing with the woman at the well, there's out of compassion, but he confronts her in her sin. He confronts her in her lifestyle to the point where she doesn't tell him where to go. She repents and believes and then becomes an amazing evangelist as a result. But he confronts her. He's not, he's, he's not willing to shy away from what needs to be said. He confronts the rich young, rich young ruler. He, he cuts straight to the quick of where that guy's idol was. He said, if you want to put God number one, there's something else you need to remove from that pedestal first. He's willing to confront. He's, he's a confrontate in a good way. He's a confrontational God. He's also a zealous God. He has, Jesus had a, an actual, a, a violent anger 
when his father's name was dishonoured. There's a real hunger for his dad's name, a hunger to, um, when, to expose hypocrisy. When he was in the temple, his righteous anger, he's turning those tables over, he's getting hold of the whip. It's like, this is my dad's house. How dare you treat it like a market? You're here to make money. But this is where his name should be honoured above anywhere else, at least, at the very least. And if you can't do that in your hearts in this place, you can't do it anywhere else in your hearts. He was angry about it. And the way he speaks to the Pharisees, Matthew 20, 23, you brood of vipers. Who do you think you are? Using my dad's name to make yourselves feel better about yourselves. You're wrong. And I can't keep my mouth shut. There was a real zealous anger within him, and rightly so. He wasn't all just meek and mild and really, really nice. He's a zealous God. He's also an uncompromising God. Utter integrity. It was God. He did not sin. And there's an utter integrity in that in as much as he didn't get killed for any criminal act. He didn't do anything wrong. He got killed because of the good news that he was the Messiah. That's what it boiled down to. People didn't like that and wanted to get rid of him. He's uncompromising and utter in his integrity. That's who this God is. Two more. He's a merciful God. Even the thief on the cross, even while Jesus himself was suffering and could be like, I'm in agony here, not just physical agony, but agony from how I'm carrying sin on me. I don't have time for you. In his mercy, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see the heart of God there, even in that moment. And one more that's tied into that is a sacrifice in God more than willing to give of himself. He had every right just to step back and go, you need to sort yourselves out. You're wrong. You need to find a way of coming to me. He knew that was impossible, but he didn't expect it of us. He knew, he knew in any way, shape or form, we can't do that. And out of his love and his mercy and his sacrifice, he was willing to step all the way, 100% to where we are. Lost in our sin and he came to us. We were dead and he made us alive. There's a sacrifice in God. who didn't have to do that at all. But because he loved us, he did. And so we see, just in a very brief, over, very brief overview of Jesus in the Gospels, these eyewitness accounts of people who were there at the time or the interviewed people who were, we see a God who is accepting and yet confronting. There's that lovely, beautiful balance of invitation and challenge. Is invitational in relationship and I want to know you and I accept you as a person and I accept you've got reasons why you do what you do. But while we're at it, I need to challenge you on stuff. Whether you like it or not. He's invitational and challenging. He's full of, in previous verses, grace and truth. Some people paint Jesus as all about truth and no grace. Some people paint Jesus as all grace and loving we're not bringing in any challenge and we don't need to change our behaviour in response to him. He's full of both. Grace and truth. And it's out of his grace with people that he brought truth and challenge and provocation and expectations of them. He's born out of love. We also see a God who is compassionate and yet violently zealous for his Father's name. He was uncompromising and merciful. He's holy and perfect. 
and yet sacrificing. How long has that taken me? Four or five minutes? And there's a brief overview that just blows my mind. Wait till you dig deeper. <laughs> and there, I would suggest, is a beautiful God. If we put so much effort into the things we see, 80% of the information we receive is about what we see with our eyes. We're looking for the cosmetic. In fact, as Isaiah 53 points out, he wasn't beautiful in any way. There is no cosmetic beauty here. What I suggest, instead of cosmetic beauty, we're talking about a cosmic beauty. It goes so much deeper. It's not cosmetic, it's cosmic. And so there's just a couple of things I want to say to you on the back, or say to myself as well, on the back of that. If at the moment you don't know him, if you don't believe in God and you're just here just because you're searching, if you don't know if there's a God around, if you don't know God exists, then can I just suggest you look to the man Jesus in the Bible, listen to what he says, the things he did in historical accounts that are actually upheld in other accounts outside of the Bible. It's not just feeding itself. Historically authenticated man who declared himself to be the Son of God and did things that back that up. If you want to see if there's a God out there, take a look at Jesus. But maybe you're thinking, well, I do believe in God, I just don't know who he is or what he looks like. Then again, the same thing I'll say to you. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And it's him, in him that we see the true character, the true splendor of an amazing, beautiful, cosmic God. And if you do believe, a couple of things. One, an encouragement. One, a bit more sober. First of all, as an encouragement, one day we will see him face to face. We will see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 12, I now see in a mirror darkly, dimly. One day I will see him face to face. Face to face. One day it's coming. And tomorrow it'll be closer. It's happening. And Revelation 22, you see the God on the throne and the Lamb by his side. And we see his face. Finally, at last, we get to see him. I know. And tomorrow, that day will be closer. It's coming. Be encouraged. That's the invitational bit, invitational challenge. The challenge bit is this, a slightly sober thought. The word Christian effectively means little Jesus. And we as his church, as his body, we are his hands and feet and mouth on this earth. People look to us and we represent him. God uses the church and his word to reveal Christ to the world around us as well as signs and wonders on top. And we do represent him. So I would suggest that is why Paul and other writers in the New Testament urged the church, you're the bride of Christ. Just be mindful of how you honour each other or dishonour each other. Be mindful of how you fellowship. Be mindful of your conduct together. Jesus said it's by your love for one another that people will know you're my disciples. We are a shop window to the world of what it means to be his family and who our king is. So it's just it's a sober thought to myself, how I conduct myself when I think I'm not being watched. The world's watching. <laughs> how I conduct myself doesn't get me closer to God. Jesus has dealt with that. But I represent him. And we are all witnesses. You might unfortunately be a bad one. You're still being a witness. Or do you want to be a good one? That represents Christ in all his glory and how we conduct ourselves together.
This whole series has been about Jesus is actually God's message to us of who he is and what he's done for us. Jesus is God out loud. Remember we had that right at the beginning. Jesus is God out loud. But we're not just talking about surround sound. We're not just talking about a God to be heard. We're talking about a God to be seen. So while Jesus is God out loud, it's not just surround sound. It's 3D, scratch and sniff, technicolor. This is Jesus and therefore we know who the Father is. So God will say to each one of us this morning, do you want to see me? Then look at Jesus. Do you want to understand me? Understand Jesus. Do you want to know me? Get to know Jesus. He's the only way. I just want to pray. <sighs> Father, thank you that by Holy Spirit, those of us that know you, it's because your Holy Spirit opened the eyes of our heart, enlightened us to know you through Jesus. The only way, truth, and life, the only way to you is via your Son. And Holy Spirit, you've opened our eyes to that. Thank you so much. We revel in that. We celebrate that. Remind us of that every day. But Lord, we want to know you more. So teach us to know Christ more. Teach us to dig deep into your word. Teach us to spend time with you. Teach us to abide with you. Teach us to happily linger with you when we could even easily pick up that remote control or that mobile phone or whatever it is and just actually, do you know what? I just want to linger with him. Teach us to want to do that. Not out of duty, just out of relationship. Just out of a celebration of who you are and what you've done for us. Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, you are revealing yourself to us. May you continue to do that. May nothing we do get in the way of that. May we shake off all sin that hinders us and look to you, Jesus. Because you're the one that did it for us. You're the one who endured the cross for the joy set before you. And that joy was us in this room and our family spread abroad. Jesus, help us to look to you. We love you so much and yet we still don't know you enough. Help us, help me to do that. In your precious, sweet name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to leave it there. Teas and coffees in our serve. There's one thing I will say. There's a little story to tell you. Ministry team will be available. We want to pray for you. We're going to keep praying for healing. We're not going to let go of this. We're going to keep praying for any kind of healing. Emotional, physical, whatever it is. If you want to know Christ, we'll pray with you. That's a spiritual healing. We're just going to keep praying for healing. But a little story, David Tarr has had some more tests. His prostate cancer, was, there would be concerns that it would spread to the bones. And the doctors were doing other scans that they don't normally do. And we were thinking, eek, probably, in a light, light way of putting it. And many of us have been praying vehemently during the week. Scans came back all clear. It's just in the prostate, nowhere else and then they're making plans. So praise God for that. And in the meantime, keep praying. Keep praying. We believe a God who heals can and still does today, and we're going to keep expecting it. And when we don't see it, we're going to keep expecting it. And when we still don't see it, we're going to keep asking, because one day we will. Peggy, have you got a story? Okay.
What's his name? Sorry, Harrison. Let's do it now. Lord, we lift little baby Harrison to you right now. Just lift, lift your voices now. Lord, we lift this little child to you and we just say, may you have compassion on this child in suffering, this family. May you just lift him up right now. We say, Harrison, be healed in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come upon that child. Revive his breathing. May he start feeding. May he just be so well that in a week's time they just won't recognize the child. Lord, may you just come and bless him richly. We say, Harrison, be healed in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Keep praying for him. We're going to keep asking. Give us an update when you hear anything, will you, Peggy? Thank you. Other than that, teas and coffees are served. But please find the ministry team or myself if you want prayer. Thank you, everyone.